been a long time coming, so I'm happy to announce the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon. We need a place to get everyone together where we can talk about important things like sourcing, college tuition, taking exams, typewriter repair, liquor with important historical connections, network error codes, does CBD oil actually work, and if you named a range of cigars after members of Washington's cabinet, which shapes would be named after which cabinet members? I should say that all of these have been topics of pre- and post-podcast banter with guests. As a member and patron of Historically Thinking, you will get access to a range of benefits, including a weekly podcast only for Common Room members, regular discussion questions from members to be used in all the podcasts, as well as the ability to choose topics for future podcasts, competitions and prizes, and priority access to future gatherings and course offerings, with more benefits to follow. We will continue to produce our regular podcast, still available for free on Monday in your regular podcast feed. We hope you'll enjoy being part of Historically Thinking by joining the Common Room at Patreon. And thank you for supporting Historically Thinking's mission. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to www.historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. On January 30th, 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. During the next 100 days, a fragmented society was seemingly transformed into a unified one, with religious confessions and left and right transformed together into a people's community. To outsiders, Germany was no longer recognizable. To its sympathizers, it had been miraculously healed after a seemingly terminal disease. In these months of change and decision, conversion and coercion, Everything changed, writes Peter Fritsche, but how much? Peter Fritsche is author most recently of Hitler's first 100 days, when Germans embraced the Third Reich. He is W.D. and Sarah E. Trowbridge, professor of history at the University of Illinois and the author of 10 previous books. Peter, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. So you uh, make the comparison uh, at the beginning of the uh, FDR's 100 days and Hitler's 100 days, which are happening, I don't know why this ever never occurred to me, these are happening simultaneously, um, more or less. And uh, FDR referred to the crowding events of the 100 days. That's his great, his great line. Um, why maybe the, 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 the 100 days of uh, presidents are probably the most overrated political marker in American uh, cultural life, uh, arguably. But you convinced me that the first 100 days of the Third Reich are absolutely essential. Um, how did you come to this project, and um, why apply the 100 days to the Third Reich? Well, the Nazis themselves did not use that kind of a time frame. They had actually the opposite. They started saying, we're never going to leave here once we're in office. Um, we're going to be here for centuries. Um, and then by September 1933, at the party rally, it's a thousand years. And that's where you get the thousand year right. Mm -hmm. So this is, um, so the 100 days is, is in a way the opposite. But of course, I took it from the um, American political journalism uh, and <clears throat> 
the idea for the book came um, with the 2016 elections. And although the no comparisons are explicitly made, um, I was very much in side American um, politics when I conceived of the book. But I think it's a, uh, it's a very handy tool because 100 days is very short. Um, it ends with the book burning on, on May 10. And it's sort of split in half by a still free society doing, uh, going through the elections. And then after the elections, uh, you have an increasingly unfree society where on day 60 of the Third Reich, you have the boycott of Jewish businesses and then the forced retirement of Jewish civil servants. So it goes enormously quickly. And by, by mid-May, uh, the Third Reich is truly established. So the 100 days does um, work well. And also, the, um, the, it is happening simultaneously, just a little bit earlier, to uh, FDR, who actually was born, I believe, on January 30th. <laughs> it, it's extraordinary how fast things happen. So it's, it, um, there's a very modern velocity to the 100 days you describe. It feels like a train. It feels like, I mean, a subject of your earlier books, it feels like a plane hurtling uh, through the clouds. That's, how, that's the speed that you feel and that you convey in, in, the, in the narrative. And it's, and it's not the normal rhythm of history. Um, usually things take longer and they are anticipated uh, and predicted. Um, but this, it, this history went extremely fast. And this is part of our historical experience that things can happen enormously fast. And if you think in terms of politics, you know, when a dictator comes, when a tyrannical government comes, things change very quickly. Enemies are identified, um, friends are aggregated, and, um, and, and suddenly you have an us-them uh, society. And that is, that's what happened in Germany uh, very quickly in February and March 1933. You, so you, I, as I quoted you, you write, everything changed, but how much? Was that the, the question that you began? Uh, is that the question that, to which the, you have a thesis to respond to that? Well, I mean, it, things changed very quickly in terms of politics, but um, you still went to the movies and um, Grand Hotel opened um, right around the boycott uh, in early April 1933. You went to the uh, winter sales at the department stores. You went to concerts. Um, you went to the bars uh, and restaurants. In, in that sense, a daily rhythm um, main, was maintained, perhaps not in working class neighborhoods where there were massive arrests after the elections of March 5th. And then a lot of people thought that Germany had healed itself, that this was, Germany wasn't on the cusp of a revolution. What it what what Germany had done was, um, uh, well, repaired itself and, and, and was going to now take care of the damage. So it was a healing and even a reconciliation process. So in the minds of some people, we were getting back to the essential Germany that had always lain beneath the surface and was getting rid of the clutter uh, of the surface of democracy and then um, and the problem, economic problems of the Great Depression. To reveal the real Germany below. So there are a lot of experiences of, of time 
um, time and space. <laughs> now, of course, once you hit the war uh, in 1939, uh, everybody, of course, feels the pain. Uh, for many Germans, the years 1933 to 39 are the good old days. <laughs> that they look back to with a degree of um, a degree of nostalgia and pleasure. So, how did the hundred days begin? Hitler could not break through the forty percent. He couldn't get uh, a uh, working majority in the elections and in the parliament. Um, he never got over thirty-seven percent, so he could not break this forty percent barrier even though he thought he would. He sees all these rallies in front of him, and he thinks he's the voice of the nation, and there's a growing act of acclamation behind him. But, but many, many voters refused to vote for him, particularly Catholic and socialist voters. So increasingly, Hitler is, realizes he's only going to come to power in one of two ways. One is through violence, through some sort of march on Berlin or a coup, and there are rumblings of that, and, and the authorities are worried about that, particularly in the summer of 1932. The other way is to somehow get appointed chancellor through the elites and to convince the president of the republic to appoint him chancellor. Now, the elites wanted to tame the Nazis. The elites were very impressed with this patriotic uh, organization, which was huge. Uh, it was the biggest thing that had happened in German politics. But they did not want Hitler as chancellor. They did not want a party leader as chancellor. They wanted a more neutral figure. And so Hitler was not appointed chancellor. And Republicans and socialists thought that the president, Hindenburg, would never appoint this ex-corporal chancellor. But then the elites succeed. Communist vote is going up. The Nazi vote's even going down. The moment to <clears throat> use the Nazis and destroy the Republic may now be slipping away. And they convinced Hindenburg over the course of January 1933 to appoint Hitler uh, and not uh, without a parliamentary majority and to give him the emergency powers he needs in order to rule until new elections, the results of the new elections come in. And so the 100 days begins with the uh, surprise that Hitler is now finally uh, appointed chancellor. He does not demand a lot of cabinet position for the Nazis. Everything is going to now um, be focused on winning the elections. And the strategy is to get a uh, enough of a majority and then somehow create a two-thirds majority in order to suspend the Constitution. But along the way to these elections, there's one important post that is occupied by the Nazis, and that is the Interior, Minister, in, in, Interior Ministry of Prussia, the largest state, three-fifths of Germany. And Goering, Goering is the, uh, is the man in charge there, and he has control over the Prussian police. And increasingly, the police will be um, authorized to go against the enemies of the uh, nation, 
and they will even be deputized uh, to be part of the Nazi par well the Nazi paramilitaries the SA will be deputized to be um, um, adjunct policemen auxiliary policemen and so increasingly the 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 um, coercive powers of the state are used. Uh, by the Nazis, and they then dominate the elections, the radio, public space, more and more. And then are the elections. Then come the elections. Let's uh, let's talk about yeah. Let's talk about the domination of public space. Uh, it's I think your first or second chapter, and absolutely fascinating because you're focusing particularly on Berlin because. I guess I, I don't know this, uh, the how few Nazis there actually were in Berlin in, say, 1930. But then how in that first, in the month before the elections, uh, their numbers have grown since 1930, but still they completely dominate the public space in a very social democratic uh, well, anyway, you tell the story. It's it's because it's fascinating. What's fascinating to me, I mean, particularly, particularly one item, is how the Sportpalast Sports Palace goes from being a uh, public space until eventually it becomes almost a mythological place within party the party mythology. Before Hitler becomes chancellor in 1933, the Nazi party becomes the biggest political party in Germany, the biggest political phenomena in German history. It comes from 2% in 1928 to 37% in 1932, four years later. It's a, it's a huge political phenomena, and no, um, it's the biggest thing that happens in, in German history in the 20th century. So we, we need to explain this explosive growth of the Nazi party. And they break through in elections in 1929 and 1930 across Germany in tandem, to some extent, with the outbreak of the Great Depression. But the Nazis are extremely effective political creature. So they are very public. They're not scared of using socialist or communist tactics. They have red in their flag, the flag of uh, the color of distress. Um, they talk about a national revolution. They're out on the street. They're uniformed. Um, they're displaying order, uh, but also um, they're threatening uh, the enemies of the nation, the socialists uh, and the communists. Violence is used um, in order to show that you mean it, that you're consequential, and that you will go after uh, Germany's enemies. In the run-up to the elections, Nazis would hold meetings every day, in whether it's in a neighborhood or in a small town. And up to 10% of these small towns then came and, and listened to the Nazis, which is just an absolutely uh, huge number. After the elections, they continued to stay in town. They didn't leave. There were constant meetings. They used the streets very effective. Visually, they were uniform, but, but um, in terms of uh, sound, um, there were always chants, songs. So in this way, they, they dominated uh, public space they were a microphone, a visual and uh, auditory um, amplification. And in this way, it seemed as though the streets were occupied. They would also rampage. They would uh, run trucks through 
working class neighborhoods to show their power. Um, you know, all the Nazis in Berlin would participate in this action, um, but they would invade, invade a working class neighborhood. Or Nazi toughs would go to the uh, fancy West End and, and beat up Jewish looking individuals. So their audacity is also one aspect of the occupation of public space. And they are young party, they're dynamic, and so that more and more people are attracted to them. And they become hegemonic among Protestant middle-class neighborhoods. And, um, and they are attractive because they're dynamic, they're young, they promise something very new, they're not nostalgic for the Kaiser, and the Nazis have a cross-class base. They do have work, middle class, the rich, professors, students, peasants, Catholics, Protestants. So they are, a, they are the most diverse party in German politics. And that in itself is appealing because they are the microcosm then of the new community the Nazis want to build. How do they acquire that diverse electorate? The appeal of the Nazis is in the acronym of the German name. National Socialist German Workers Party. They want a sense of collective responsibility and social uplift and social respect. They're not talking about socialism, uh, but, but, but they're talking about collective interests, the common wheel, that's inside the word uh, social for them. But it's national, it's not international. We have to defend Germany's interests against external enemies and internal enemies who had been there in 1918 and fomented revolution and stabbed the German armies in the back. So the German interests are extremely important. But just to underscore everything, every German needs to be under this umbrella of national unity and national vigilance, especially workers who have been uh, discriminated against, socially discriminated against uh, for decades and seen as strangers uh, to the German polity, and the Nazis embrace them. They don't embrace Marxism. They embrace workers. And they, this succeeds. Uh, they are, uh, they are the, they're smaller than the communists and the socialists, but they're a pretty big working class party. And that in itself becomes appealing and they get even more people. <laughs> so the other right-wing parties were big on patriotism, but not so good on helping the little man and not so good on embracing workers. And I'll give you an example. The Nazis in a small town would hold their uh, meetings in the stockyards, whereas the right-wing party would hold it in the fanciest hotel in town. That tells you already a lot. The Nazis are mm -hmm. populist. They're down to earth. They practice speaking dialect. We know wherever they are. Um, they buttonhole farmers. They buttonhole workers. Uh, they, re they really do want to be um, uh, a party of the little man. Um, and at the same time, uh, they have students, they have uh, middle class people. Um, the richer the precinct in Berlin, uh, the more Nazi votes. They're 
early bastions of support is the university, students, uh, especially students, uh, but also professors. Yeah. Yeah, you make clear that the, the universities are always a location of, uh, the universities are a location of, of, uh, of radicalism for the Nazi party. Right. I mean, they hate the student fraternities, um, uh, but they find a lot of energy. I mean, the Nazis are a big energy machine. And once you get started, it, it, it accumulates and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Let, let me uh, quote you to yourself. You have, there's so many great uh, aphorisms, really, in this book. Uh, you write, in a democratic age, power is reckoned in voters, party members, activists, and the press. That calculus ensured that the Nazis remained the major player in German politics. I think you've just explained what you mean by that, but could you, but could you fill, it, fill it out a little bit? The Nazis are not Democrats. <laughs> they don't believe in parliamentary democracy, but they do believe in the people and that the people legitimate uh, the movement. And they believe that they're representing the popular will. And in that sense, they are a democratic phenomenon. They're comfortable on the street. They want to make their movement bigger and bigger. They believe it has to be legitimated through the people and not through traditional other forms of legitimation like dynasty or social class. Um, they don't believe in showing deference uh, to rank and status. And so they're very, they're very populous. Uh, they believe they represent the people. And they're comfortable on the streets, they have, and they have a huge press. Um, they use individual bodies uh, in, in assemblage uh, to make themselves known. Uh, they hold huge rallies. Uh, they are, have a party organization that pays for itself. They are not supported by big business. Uh, and, and everything is done for for. Public effect, the big rallies, 200,000 people in Berlin, 10,000 in this small town. Always, always this public sense of acclamation that they, in fact, represent the nation. They are, in fact, the nation. And so in that sense, they are very democratic phenomena, as opposed to the very unpopular emergency chancellors who've been running Germany during the Great Depression. Their names are Bruning, Poppen, Schleicher. They had no support. So the Nazis could say, we're the Democrats. We're the largest party. Give us the power. We represent the people. And ultimately, the elites realize that. They want to tame the Nazis on their own terms. But then finally, they realize they can't do it on their own terms. Because they, they, they don't have any assets. They have no yeah. assets. Yeah. Hitler has the assets. So if you want to destroy the republic which is their goal, and undo 1918 and keep socialists out of government, then, then you embrace Hitler. And that is what happened on the 30th of January, 1933. And then, and then following that, you write, uh, this is writing about February, it was as if the frame holding things together began to slip just a bit day by day. What, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, the, of course, there's lots of Nazis on the street, but n those are the uniform uh, paramilitaries that one usually sees. 
But no one's quite sure who votes Nazi or not. Sometimes people put out a pennant or a flag or they wear a pin. But on the whole, uh, one doesn't know exactly who is doing what. Um, for example, Albert Speer, um, his mother was voting Nazi, but he didn't know it until after 1933. And suddenly after Hitler comes to power, suddenly there's more penance from the balconies. Suddenly people wear the badge in their lapel. Suddenly people um, are seen in uniform who hadn't been seen in uniform before. They are willing to uh, change their clothes in their apartment and then go down on the street of their neighborhood in, u in uniform and publicly say to their neighbors uh, that they're not. And this is a very slow process. This process is, you know, on the 31st of January, the first, second, third. And suddenly you see a, this brown wave. People also are talking different um, about finally Hitler. Now we will um, have a, a real revolution. Now a new dawn breaks. Now we'll get rid of the Jews. People allow themselves to say, say things that they didn't beforehand. Suddenly more and more people are greeting themselves with the Hitler salute. So in that, this doesn't happen all at once. But, but you see it happening uh, day by day by day. And then the radio waves are taken, because the Nazis are now in power, they can use the radio. Because only government ministers are allowed to use the radio, not opposition uh, candidates. And so suddenly the radio um, broadcasts these Nazi sounds. The microphone is always put so that the crowds are heard, the screams, the songs. And suddenly it sounds like the radio is broadcasting the voice of the nation. Radio is trusted more than newspaper. And people put the radios on their windows so that the radio sound goes into the street. Uh, so, and then they set up, um, uh, you know, broad, what do you call it, broadcast things so that the radio is played on the street, is amplified on the street. <laughs> and so sight and sound, uh, suddenly the Nazis are around and the Nazis are big with chants and big and, with song. And, and there's this uh, complex sort of um, feedback loop where everyone's monitoring the pins, lapel pins, are people on this street, in this neighborhood, how are people feeling about Hitler? Maybe I, there's this very, this, this, you describe this sort of, this, uh, people are always look, reading one another to figure out That's where right. things and, are and going. And what's so interesting is uh, that that becomes a pull into the organization. And more and more people allow themselves to cross the threshold. And they don't want to be outsiders. They want to be insiders. They want to be part of this renewal and people have different interpretations of what Nazism is. I mean, some people emphasize the national, some people emphasize the socialist, some people emphasize anti-Semitism, others economic uh, renewal. Everybody goes their own way. So you can find your way in the Nazi party. But in the end, with this feedback, let's take the Hitler salute. Nobody really knows how genuine the Hitler salute is, are you faking it? Are you being a fake Nazi? Are you being an opportunistic Nazi? And we know that the Nazi membership increases dramatically in the three or four days uh, after the announcement that the roles will be closed and before the deadline. 
<laughs> so thousands of people become Nazi party members because they see this deadline approaching and better to be on the inside than outside. But people are genuine, too, about this. They don't want to be on the outside. They want to be part of this huge energy machine. Then, of course, there's opportunism. Then, of course, there's fear. And then, of course, there are the few people who don't allow themselves to be contaminated by any of this. But it's hard. You know, my, my, uh, my grandparents had to join certain Nazi party organizations. They joined the social welfare thing. My grandfather, he was a socialist, but he, was, um, he had to go to a camp for lawyers and wear the swastika. Um, they had to show the flag like everybody else. And then they don't have total control over my mother. Now, she's, uh, she wants to go to the rallies in Nuremberg, you know, because it's a week free from your parents. You go, there's thousands and thousands of kids. And you go by train, special train, sleep in a tent. And um, my, my grandmother got my mother to... Uh, Get off this idea because she kept saying, where are the bathrooms? You don't know where the bathrooms are, you know, on this huge rally, uh, Zeppelin Field in, in Nuremberg. And so my mother didn't go. But the kids bring this stuff in right there in the Hitler youth or their homework. And so uh, people do have to accommodate themselves. But a lot of it is genuine and willing because this is the big new phenomenon that is going to repair and um, renew Germany, and the first signs of renewal are there. By the summer, you have better employment. But let's before I get to that, um, before, and I want to go back to that the, the the children's crusade element of this, which is is fascinating. But um, let's talk about two the two major inflection points a month after Hitler is chancellor, the Reichstag fire, and then the elections of March fifth. Yeah, everything, all the violence break, breaks out on March 5th. So what the Nazis do is they, they get 43%. That, it's not that good. Uh, with their, with their uh, alliance partners, uh, they, get, they have 52%. That is not a two-thirds majority. So how are they going to get it to destroy the Constitution? Well, they outlaw the Communist Party after the election which means you don't see those parliamentarians. That reduces the total and thus reduces the need to get the two-thirds. And then basically, they say this is the moment of national unity. We are on the cusp of economic renewal and political renewal. Give me four years, he says, and I will repair Germany. And so the other parties go along with this. They don't want to buck the trend of unity. They even enforce uh, party discipline inside their parliamentary group as a sign of showing unity. So the Catholics go for this. And then the tiny splitter parties, what's left of the liberals and so on. But the Catholic thing is the key. And many Catholics did not agree with suspending the Constitution, but they didn't want to buck the party trend and they didn't want to go against the spirit of unity. And so Hitler has his two-thirds majority. Only one party votes against the suspension, and that's the Social Democratic Party of Germany. The Social Democrats. And, um, 
And so, so, so he has his two-thirds majority. At the same time, and what he does is the suspends the Constitution and the emergency powers devolve to him. They go from the president to the chancellor. So he doesn't have to ask anyone for emergency powers. He's got them. And then at the same time, beginning after the elections, on Monday, March 6th, a wave of violence breaks across Germany. The Nazis have pluralities everywhere. They're the largest party everywhere. But not everywhere do they have a majority. So they simply take over. They take over the town halls. They take over the states. Uh, they occupy the trade union halls. They bust up the socialist press. Then they start beating up Jews. They boycott department stores. Certain people are killed uh, for old vendettas. Um, socialist uh, towns are, are, are um, invaded and the people mishandled. Um, many people are arrested and thrown into wild concentration camps, which are bowling alleys or restaurants or uh, basements um, to be tortured. And uh, it's just an incredible wave of violence uh, that breaks out. And this is why this is the you say the single most consequential week in German history, right? Because, is this week after that, right? And and the violence plus this tidal wave of support that the Nazis are getting makes the other parties feel as though they're lost in history, that they are obsolescent, that they don't belong. So they, there's a failure of nerve. Even the Social Democrats make noises that oh, remember we're patriots too. We fought in World War One too. We honor the German landscape and the German hills, too. So suddenly they're trying to play the patriot card because they're really intimidated by the way that the Nazis are occupying not just space, but discourse. And uh, as, as the true, true uh, representatives of the true Germany. And then the concentration camps are opened on um, March 21st. And about 100,000 people will cycle through those. So it is a question always of coercion and consent. How, how fast do those 100,000 people go through in just the next month? Most will be or, released or, by Christmas. Wow. 100,000 people just that year. Right. Now, he, Hitler gives them an amnesty. He releases them uh, in December, many in December. Obviously not everybody. There's some people they want to keep and torture forever till death. Um, Ernst Heilemann, Eric Nuzam, horrible story. But most, most, most of the run-of-the-mill run communists and socialists are released, just like Hitler was released on a Christmas amnesty in 1924. Um, the concentration camps will then be repurposed, not for political prisoners anymore. Now it's for biological degenerates, and that's how they're filled until um, the war. Uh, so the political phase of the concentration camps is, is really a, at the beginning and not so much later. I mean, sure, they're political prisoners, but not in these numbers. Could you describe a little bit more about how the, the Nazis occupied a city? I mean, you have a great example, Braunschweig, uh, in, this, in this, this, this March week. I mean, this is this, you know, a sort of big week. That's the usually U.S. Army Air Force term from the war, but this is, this is big week. Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's getting closer and closer and closer. Uh, it's it's um, having more and more audacity. 
So first, they'll have a big rally outside the socialist headquarters. Uh, then they start singing. Maybe they'll rough up people going in and out. Then the next day, another rally. Uh, and then they break into the building and, and they burn the material of the socialists. Then another big rally uh, on the uh, market square and with the SA band playing. And that results then in <clears throat> certain Nazis going downtown, smashing department store windows uh, and, and roughing up uh, Jewish looking bystanders. And then the final uh, moment comes when uh, they rally around uh, City Hall, uh, but, but they're not the mayor. <laughs> and so uh, they bust into the City Hall and they, they force uh, the authorities to give them the key to the roof so that they can put the Nazi flag up on the flagpole and take down mm -hmm. the German flag. So up goes the Nazi flag. Uh, and sometimes then the authorities will take it back down in the evening, but the Nazis are watching. And so the, the final step is simply to arrest, rough up and arrest the mayor and say, your time is finished and arrest him, rough him up, uh, march him down the streets in, in public rituals of humiliation. And uh, at that point, the mayor resigns. <laughs> and, uh, and the Nazis, with their plurality, uh, take over. Uh, they may use the emergency legislation to outlaw uh, particular socialist parliamentarians, as well as the Communist Party as such. Uh, and so really, they, they build a majority out of their plurality. And that is com that's a process that's complete in 10 days. In, in hundreds of towns and cities, or thousands, how, what's, what numbers are we, t in every town and in, in, in city, or, or? Well, by, I mean, the Nazis have 400,000 paramilitaries in Berlin. In a, that's a 10% of the population. Uh, and they have about 30% of the vote uh, in 1932-33. And the proportions are going to be the same everywhere, sometimes higher in Catholic regions, somewhat lower. But even in Catholic regions, they <clears throat> certainly have, have a presence. And it's, they have a plurality in most precincts. So they're the largest party. And it's on the basis of that plurality uh, that they <clears throat> take over um, all levels <coughs> of government. And, um, and sometimes they have a majority. And at the same time, more and more people are joining them. So their plurality is de facto uh, getting better. It is by far the most popular massive phenomenon in German history. You know, socialists and communists are more concentrated in a neighborhood. Uh, the Nazis are everywhere. And, um, and it's for a parliamentary system, they're 40 percent. It's pretty, pretty impressive. Could we um, go back to what you had mentioned earlier about the role of, sort of the, ch the way that children led parents and adults further into the, uh, the, the new regime? Because I think that's, that's fascinating. Well, I think that most Germans quickly accommodated themselves to the Nazis. 
And everybody didn't like some things, but could also point to many things that they did like. Uh, and there's a real sense of renewal. But parents being parents, they also want to be in charge of their children. And the children are being more and more overseen by the Nazis on Saturdays. Uh, they have to do uh, be part of the Hitler Youth. So no school on Saturday, uh, but Hitler Youth. Then there's evening meetings, and there are campaigns and actions. A lot of the donations for the social welfare fund are, are um, you know, the boxes and the pail uh, buckets are, are held by uh, the youth. They, they are really mobilized. And so Nazi paraphernalia gets into the house and Nazi ideas get into the house. And the uniform, either have to make it or you have to buy it. Uh, and so parents become more, yes, it is. It's, yeah, so it's often it's handmade. And um, and and so who's going to make the who's going to make the uniform? It's it's it's, it's mom. Booty. And so I don't want to say the parents are de facto unwilling, uh, but I I'm sure that they're somewhat uneasy about not having control over the time that the curriculum is changing so quickly. Uh, and then and then youth are mobilized. I mean, I would say you know at the Nuremberg rallies. Over these six years, I would say half of all German youth, 10. That's extraordinary. Um, you um, highlight the importance of four big celebrations in these three months, um, which amplify everything you've been discussing already, the way that the public spaces are being claimed, the, the, the sounds, the, the, the amplification both visually and auditorially. Uh, could you describe these celebrations and how they? This is these are key moments in creating this Volksgemeinschaft. Yeah, I mean this is this is this is kind of the, Hitler certainly sees these as key moments, and it seems to me that all the participants feel that powerfully, powerfully, powerfully. These are they are liturgical. It's these are liturgical events of a national liturgy. They certainly wanted to nationalize these events uh, and not make them party events. These were national events. So they would always use things like church bells, uh, the sounds of the nation and not of the party. They made sure that every town was part of this celebration because not only were the radios, the loudspeakers placed on the market square, but every town had its own celebration. And that meant that people left the neighborhoods, the precincts, and came to the center all classes, all kinds of people, then they would listen in their, to Hitler's speech or to the broadcast of the festivities. So not, they miniaturize their own version of the celebrations, but then participated in the national. This started happening with the eve before the election, where there's a huge Nazi party uh, rally in, uh, in East Prussia, and that's where the, they, don't, they don't actually get the churches to bring the church bells on that occasion, but they have a record. They have a record of the church bells. So, so it sounds like the nation coming together. Then they, and then the big, first big celebration is the opening of the new parliament, the new Reichstag. And it takes place in the church in the military city of Potsdam where Frederick the Great is born, uh, buried. 
and all the representatives of old and new Germany are assembled, the Kaiser's family. The president, Hindenburg, the supreme leader during World War I, and Hitler's uh, opponent in the presidential elections of 1932, and Hitler, and Hitler uncustomarily wears a suit, not a uniform, and he deliberately bows in deference to Hindenburg to sh show the, the easy reconciliation of the old and new Germany. And then two days later, he'll take the emergency powers away from the old guy. Um, mm -hmm. These are nationally broadcast. Then they interview the man on the street, specially found. So there's a blind man, a veteran, and he basically says, and now I can see. Or they get a miner, or they'll get a farmer, or a vintner, and interview them, interview the little man. Um, and then this culminates uh, in a, a huge celebration where the Nazis take over May Day, the Socialist Labor Day, which had not been an official holiday, now is. The Nazis make it an official holiday. And they... They address workers. They talk about the honor of work. Um, again, the national broadcast will interview work. Um, that has a Zeppelin flying overhead. This is the product of German industry and German working hands. And, uh, and then Hitler addresses uh, people. Uh, the crowds assembled. This is the biggest event ever to take place in Berlin's history. And we know this through the number of tickets sold on the subway and the trams. And he, he addresses workers and he says, you know, I, I understand why you vote used to vote social democratic because you were not part of the nation. But you served so honorably in the war. You embraced the nation in 1914. You were misled by the social democrats. And now you're home again. And that worked for many. Now, of course, they mourn the loss of free trade unions and the like, but they also, very important, but they, but they also think in a time of unemployment, trade unions aren't so powerful anyways. Uh, they also think they have a degree of, of uh, in, um, confidence that a page will be turned. Not all workers and any opponent of Hitler in, in all of these years, probably a communist or a socialist. That's true. But most communists and socialists accommodate themselves. He describes some of them burning their red flags. Yes. So an act of, an act of um, conversion. But, you know, Hitler also had to use the fist, and that's why there's concentration camp. But these public broadcasts, uh, and then nationalized ceremony so that every town has its own ceremony. This is syncopated through March, April, May, uh, and then continues also. You know, Hitler had elections throughout the Third Reich. They were referendums. And they put in huge energy uh, to get people to come out and vote um, <clears throat> and vote with the nation and with their neighbor to bring in Austria, um, to leave the League of Nations, uh, to vote in a new parliament. Um, so these, these public 
uh, stagings and the referendum were, uh, were, were part of the Third Reich and were to show the acclamation. And indeed, every book cover on the Third Reich is filled with crowds giving the Hitler salute. I mean, our own publishing industry, uh, and of course the authors are complicit in this, we basic this is the this is the riddle to be solved. This massive support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is also following the elections in March and April is when, as you say, the astonishing moment in German history when one citizen was designated for persecution to protect another. Yeah, there's two events. Uh, the first event is the boycott. Now, the boycott comes straight out of the violence following the election, Mm -hmm. because the violence is so big, and it's spread to Jews as victims, victimizes Jews, the department stores, Mm -hmm. um, that it uh, it gets press in the United States. And uh, people, Newsweek, Time Magazine report constantly from uh, this terror land, this land of terror, this reign of terror. And finally, there's a big there's increasingly big protest meetings against the Nazis, including one in Madison Square Garden, but also one in London. And now the Nazis see that, 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 that international opinion has moved against them, even though they think they've just created the most beautiful, peaceful revolution. And so they are now, and for to them, it looks like the world war all over again. They're being ganged up on by France, the United States, and Great Britain, who are using the same kind of atrocity propaganda as they did in World War One. And of course, time about. And of course, they're all united by the Jewish conspiracy. Right, and so now in, we will punish our Jews mm-hmm. in an act of defense against the Allies, and this is how it's framed: defend yourself, German. We are using the only weapons we have against uh, the threat to us and our revolution, represented at home uh, by Jews for this boycott. And people, people always think that the boycott kept people from shopping. That's not true. Nobody was in town to shop for anything at 10 o'clock on Saturday. They were there to see the spectacle. And as... The streets were crowded. It was a very rainy day. Streets were completely crowded. And as people assembled and watched, and of course had conversations, you know, with people about all of this, they created an us versus them. Now, the boycott is a party event organized by the Nazi party. But six days later, the government issues regulations allowing all levels of government in Germany to fire political, dangerous political um, officials. So the socialists would be swept out of the administrations of the German cities and states. Now that is discretionary, but that, that's what the law is supposed to do. And it mandates the forced requirement, without pension, incidentally, of Jews. And Jews is defined extremely broadly. One grandparent. And 
there are exceptions which make it all very complicated and, in fact, just add to the conversations going on about Jews and race and quotas and numbers. But, um, but this is about 50% uh, of Jewish civil servants uh, are black. And if you have a Jewish grandmother and didn't know it, you're in for quite a surprise. And ultimately, German society will be de-Judified, uh, clubs, associations, so on, uh, through this mechanism of you have to swear an oath that you don't have Jewish grandparents. And if you have one, uh, you you become a Jew under this law of April 7th, 1933. And this is like day 64, 65 of the Third Reich. It's absolutely extraordinary. And these us them lines are now going to become quite firmly in place that the Germans are under attack and that they need to rally around themselves, really, mm-hmm. in order to protect themselves. There's so much to talk about in this book, but I w- we need to start wrapping things up. I um, was very struck by a scene you describe where a bunch of now socialist communists prisoners in a concentration camp are taken on a bus, I think to see Hamburg and made to then on, after their return forced to narrate what they had seen. Uh, it's a powerful scene because what they Can you describe that? Uh, because it, it's, right, so it, it's, so, it's, it so describes your, your thesis and it supports your thesis. I think. This is May day. And so they take selected prisoners uh, from a concentration camp, put them on a bus, and they go to two places in order to see the vast crowds that have assembled for May Day, including working-class crowd. And then they're taken through a tour of a working-class neighborhood where the, the, uh, the inmates can see all the Nazi flags flying where communist and socialist flags had once flown. And then the inmates... Uh, come back and um, designated ones narrate what they have seen. And they are struck uh, by what they've seen. They don't think that this is camouflage or fake uh, or a, a fake proscenium or something, a Potemkin village. They think that these flags are flown for genuine purpose. The workers have converted to the Nazis. Now, the truth is not quite that, but they are very impressed, like all Germans are, with these crowds. And they take them, literally, and they take them as representative of the nation. The rally as representative of the real Germany and the numerical majority Germany. And the... They've been in prison for a month and a half, almost two months. And right. Germany has, in their absence, completely changed. It slipped away from them. Germany has changed completely in their absence. And they are struck by two things. One, everyone's normal. They're chit-chatting about the sports, about football, about movies, whereas they've been tortured and beaten uh, for these weeks. Uh, but then they go home to their neighborhoods, and they're astonished how many people have become Nazi. So what had been our street is now their street. And they feel very uncomfortable in their new surroundings. Um, and some will make their ways, 
but others will, will, will feel a real sense of estrangement outside of the most intimate circles. And so all the sociability of the singing, the athletic clubs, the bicycling, the football teams, that kind of sociability is very much crippled uh, in, in working class area. And anyways, you always have to sing the Nazi anthem at the end and raise your hand at the beginning. And so a lot, a lot of people do things uh, in smaller groups that aren't officially uh, designated clubs. And then that means, of course, that civil society is poisoned at the root from the very beginning of the Third Reich. Right. And I mean, except that socialists are seen as 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 the enemy. No newspaper talks about the Constitution, the rule of law, uh, keeping a common framework for political purpose. It was all partisan. And either you're with the Nazis or you're not. Either you're for the National Revolution of 1933 or you're for the, the socialist, traitorous revolution of November 1918. Um, and so in that sense, there is no civic life. It's completely partisan, made partisan. So what had been a very angry and fragmented society is suddenly given this sheer sheen, veneer, uh, and even more than a veneer, of unanimity. And nobody quite knows who's an opportunist and who's a loyalist. Uh, but more and more people cross the threshold, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the socialists are completely outflanked. I want to um, ask you something what you th- about change. Um... And lately on the podcast, we had a discussion uh, about change and causation. And of course, the the problem of the Third Reich is one of the great thorny issues of change and causation. But I wanted to read, um, you quote the journalist uh, Sebastian Hoffner, and it's, uh, it's a profound paragraph. I'll just read this. Uh, 1890, Wilhelm II dismisses Bismarck. Certainly a key event in German history, but scarcely an event at all in the biography of any German outside the small circle of protagonists. Life went on as before. No family was torn apart, no friendship broke up, and no one fled his country. Those in love, whether happily or not, remained so. The poor remained poor, the rich remained rich. Compare that with 1933, Hindenburg sends for Hitler, an earthquake shatters 66 million lives. It's um, a lot of people. I, I, for some reason, a lot of people seem to quote Hemingway these days that bankruptcy is. It, it, what is it? It it's bankruptcy. It starts slowly and then it happens all at once. Um, this is a story of of slow slowness. Then everything happening all at once, just as as Hoffner is describing. Right, and the Nazi intention is the Nazi revolution is not to control the constitution or the government. It is to create a new racial society that is self-conscious of itself as a racial entity. And they want to create a new morality. They want to create new people. Uh, They want to create a new destiny for Germany. They really want to create a new politics called biology. And they want to make Germany a great power again. So people have to think of themselves as racial comrades, and they have to prepare for themselves as German soldiers. And that's what Hoffner means when he says uh, earthquake, because this 
completely change daily life and your own relationship to society, your neighbors, and the state. And millions and millions of these people will uh, be killed in World War II, but not after they killed even more people. Yeah. Um, I just want to conclude with a sort of a personal question. This is... um... So you've written Germans into Nazis. That was 1998. You've read Life and Death in the Third Reich in 1999. Uh, most more recently, An Iron Wind, uh, Europe under Hitler, 2016. And now we've got Hitler's first 100 days in 2020. Um, you've written other books. You've written a book, Reading Berlin. Uh, you've written a, a sort of a bunch of walks around Berlin. I'm reading your book. And I'm feeling, at times, I want to cry. I'm feeling kind of dirty. And I'm wondering to myself, how does Peter do this? Um, do you need to take a vacation after you've written about this? Uh, what? I, why continue to do this? My books are written in, with a degree of anger. Uh, anger about people becoming, allowing themselves to be complicit. Anger at people being indecent. Anger at <clears throat> the elites uh, and the conservative newspapers uh, for not adhering to rule of law. And these are important things to lay out uh, in this age and um, in an increasingly partisan age where increased partisanship means that the common rules don't matter and are not going to be followed. The other answer is, um, I mean, I, I did a lot of archival work. I mean, I know this area very well. I've been in these small towns. I've read protocols of the clubs and the nationalist associations. I've read the newspapers. I've, I must have read 20 newspapers um, for these 14 years. And um, I, I know, I, I, I try to recreate the speech, the sounds, even the smell of this era. And the final answer is once this hits you, you know, once you've started to write on the Holocaust, for example, it's very difficult not to, you're, you're, you're so surprised and astonished, uh, but that pulls you into this subject. Uh, my next book is a global history of the year 1942. So it's everything. Japan, United States, Germany, Russia. I call it Casablanca, like the movie, the Casablanca, the city, the conference. It's going to be radio. It's going to be the movies. It's going to be submarines. It's going to be the bombing. It's going to be Stalingrad. It's going to be the thought that the uh, these new empires are won't be dislodged, the German one, the Japanese one. Um, in 1942, no one knows what's going to happen yet. So, um, but it's, uh, it's, uh, I take one year so I can do everything, um, but don't proceed chrono chronologically. Uh, so popular culture, as well as uh, the psychology of fighting, and then just looking at this world, looking at the planet, and how it's put together, uh, the continents, uh, air power, and so on. And then you're constantly putting pins and maps in 1942 as the armies uh, go back and forth. 
So it's really a global event. It is the biggest, most global event in uh, all of history. One billion people of the Earth's two billion people were mobilized by this war in one way or the other. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to do next. <clears throat> and then after that, I'll probably write a book on uh, America's war in Iraq. So I, I'm sort of leaving, <laughs> sort of leaving the area oh, of the Third Reich. Well, my guest today has been Peter Fritsche. He's the author of Hitler's First Hundred Days When Germans Embrace the Third Reich. Peter, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Well, thank you very much. Just a brief reminder. If you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. <laughs>